Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Kristen Meinzer, a cultural critic, podcast host, and author. She currently hosts the podcast Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen and the podcast By the Book. Her books include So You Want to Start a Podcast, How to Be Fine, co-written with Jalenta Greenberg, and Return to Intercourse, an Amish romance. And now, here's our first letter. Boy, this next one. Uh, The subject is incestuous past is a secret. Dear Prudence, when my stepchildren, Emily and Charlie, were teenagers, they had a sexual relationship that eventually escalated to intercourse. Nothing short of sending Charlie to live with relatives, not individual counseling, not having them stay at different houses, not family therapy, stopped that sexual relationship. As best as we can tell, it was consensual and ended when they entered adulthood. Emily and Charlie are wonderful, seemingly well-adjusted adults, and Charlie recently announced his engagement to Alyssa. They've been together for three years, but thanks in part to the pandemic and their living abroad, we've only met her a few times. My husband and I have not talked about Emily and Charlie's sexual relationship for years. I never thought we would again, but now my husband wonders if Alyssa knows about it. I don't think it's our responsibility to tell her, but at the same time, we agree that we'd want this information about the other. Do we let sleeping dogs lie? This is quite a letter, Danny. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't know about you, but I have to say what stands out to me in the very beginning of this letter is, in quotes, as best we can tell, it was consensual. And I, I just, I really hope you're right when you say that this was consensual because more often than not, incestuous relationships are not consensual. And, you know, there are power dynamics, there's age, there's gender, there's a lot of other factors that can be a part of a sexual relationship, particularly between family members. So I really and truly hope that that's the case, that it actually was consensual. That just, that that hit me right there. Yeah. And, you know, for, I think, fairly straightforward reasons, numbers on the, like, rates of consensual sibling incest are you know, we don't have great numbers there. That's not something that's in, you know, so I don't feel comfortable saying either like, yeah, as you say, I think that's also an open question. Um, So to me, the key here is you, you and your husband haven't talked about it since you and your stepchildren haven't talked about it since your husband hasn't talked about it with his children since that to me is the place where there's room for intervention rather than go straight to Alyssa. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Don't bring Alyssa into this yet. Please don't do that. Yeah. Um, in part because, you know, if it is the situation that you remember, if it was a case of consensual close in age sibling incest when they were still adolescents and underage, then I think that it is important to say that given that it stopped when they were adults, if they've been able to heal that relationship, it would not necessarily be good for anyone for you to say, yes, but in the future, we're going to notify any serious partners because we think that their right to know supersedes your right to, you know, not be defined by childhood incest. 
I realize that was a bit of a rambling sentence, but uh, all of that is just to say, if if those are the circumstances, then I think it would be at most your place to encourage your stepkids to consider disclosing to a serious partner, but not to say, if you don't, I'm going to do it for you because they were, you know, they were underage. They have a right to grow up and move on with their lives. And then, it, you know, if 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 that was not the case, if there was a different dynamic at play that maybe at the time you weren't able to discern, that would be important information to have because then you would want to have a different response. And so I think the first thing to do is start talking to your husband again about this. Maybe go back to seeing a family therapist and say, now that the kids are older and we think that things stopped, we don't really know how to think about it or how to talk about it aside from just it's over, let's pretend it never happened. And that's not working for us anymore. Um, so we need to find a new way to talk about this and think about this and what should our priorities be? And then you can start thinking about talking to Emily and Charlie, I think separately at oh, first yes. um, and try to get like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, how do you now understand that relationship? And, and again, to to do that in a way that's very like, are you available to talk about this? We're not going to force you to talk about this. We're not going to come into it telling you that we know what to do. We're also open to hearing if there are things that you thought we did as parents that f- made things harder. You know, if you if you thought we made mistakes, if we failed to protect you, if we failed, failed to help you, if we were, you know, to be open to that so that you can hear the possibility that maybe you did. Yeah. And that might hurt. You may hear things that you don't want to hear, but you can go forward now and hopefully, you know, get a better grasp of how, you know, through the lens of time, Emily and Charlie each separately feel about this. And maybe they're completely at peace with it now. Maybe the perception you have of they're just really well-adjusted adults, maybe that's true. And hopefully it's true. I really hope for their sake, for everybody's sake, I hope that's the case. But, you know, I'd also say to them, if for any reason you want to pursue more counseling, we will foot the bill for that. I mean, if you can afford to do it as parents, anything you can do to help support Emily and Charlie in the next chapter of their lives— you know, offer to do that. And of course, as you said, Danny, uh, pursue your own family counseling with you and your spouse. Yeah. Yeah. And beyond that, you know, it it doesn't seem like you're about to go on like a week-long vacation with Alyssa. So you're not about to be thrown into a situation where that might be really difficult. But I think the most important thing there is to um, only commit to contact that you believe that you can solidly commit to not overriding your kid's right to decide when and how to tell that story. So for example, if you think, oh, we're all going to go get dinner together and I now don't think there's any way I can get through that without blurting it out. I think at that point, what you have to do is say to Charlie, honestly, I don't think that I can do that. What do you want to decide between you and me now so that we can make sure that that doesn't happen? And that might be sad or disappointing or hard, but I really think that the goal there should be if I cannot not discuss it with Alyssa. I need to be straightforward with, with Charlie. And then we need to reestablish the terms of our relationship rather than just hope for the best, hope I don't say anything. Um, even if that means you don't get the kind of contact that you were hoping for. Yeah. I'd also just add that your feelings might change over time. You might for a while feel like, you know what, everything's totally fine. This is a great new chapter in Charlie's life. And then maybe Charlie and Alyssa end up having a couple of kids, and then maybe you'll have to like reassess your feelings all over again. And it's okay. Our feelings change over time, and our circumstances change over time. But I would encourage you to just be realistic with yourself and not be in denial about any feelings you might have and seek the help you need and talk about what you need to through this. Yeah, yeah. Your goal does not have to be to feel comfortable about this. 
my my guess is you will never feel comfortable about this. And I think that's pretty understandable. It's even in the sort of best case scenario that was non-abusive. Um, it's still deeply taboo, deeply uncomfortable, deeply troubling, deeply affects the foundation of your family dynamic. That's, you know, I don't want to say like, that's okay. Like who cares? I just mean that would make sense to me. Your your goal here does not need to be, it's all in the past. It was like a weird dream. It's, we're all normal and great now. Like it's okay to be something that feels heavy, complicated, um, that you struggle with and that you need additional ongoing counseling to deal with and to think about. Um, that would make a lot of sense to me. But I do think that your goal should be to not make decisions about disclosing on someone else's behalf that you haven't really carefully walked through with a counselor who is specially trained in dealing with incest dynamics. Because I just think, you know, you'll have a lot of sometimes contradictory impulses. Um, and it will just really, really help to get support and clarification. And again, I, yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't feel prepared to say like, you're probably right. There, there couldn't have been an abusive dynamic at play. And I also don't want to say that's, that's never happened in the history of time. So I just feel squishy there, I guess, of just like, we don't know that it's, it's not known yet if maybe Emily or Charlie will say something new now that you didn't know at the time. Yeah. And they have to decide that for themselves. You know, that's their yeah. own history and their own story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I do think that that should be the the biggest goal here. Short of knowledge of abuse, this is their story to decide whether or when to disclose. And so your discomfort should not be used as a reason to override that right of theirs, I think. I'll, I'll sit with that one. We can come back to that later, maybe. <laughs> maybe I'll wildly change my mind, but I, I think that's where I come down on it. Okay, we'll move on to one where I feel a little bit more like buoyant. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's a word. Um, because at least it's somebody who's like, I think I'm aware of a dynamic, but I, I still have my own place to live and I'm an adult. So I, I have some options and resources, which is always a great start. You yes. know, that makes a big difference. So the subject here is grief and clutter. Dear Prudence, a few months ago, I started dating a truly wonderful man. Because of the pandemic, most of our time is spent together at his house, and I'm fine with that. It's a space that I'm surprisingly comfortable in, surprising because it is so cluttered and messy. His mother died a little over two years ago. He took care of her during her battle with cancer. With no other relatives, he became solely responsible for her estate. He has not been able to process his grief or her belongings since, and all of this has been compounded by the pandemic. He's been out of steady work since the spring. So he's been in this house, surrounded by his dead mother's things, his unemployment benefits dwindling for most of the year. When we're together, he's happy. But as he's gotten more comfortable with me, he's been able to open up about his grief and his waning self-worth. He wants to work through it. He just gets stuck. He doesn't have the funds for therapy at the moment, and every time he starts to tackle a cleaning task, something will trigger a cascade of grief that overwhelms and derails him. I usually stay overnight on the weekends, and when I'm there, he feels better and can make some progress, such as doing the dishes or tidying up. I've recently offered to help, and he is open to this. I love organizing and cleaning, and I love him. I genuinely want to help him. I am also an empath and have a tendency to be a, quote, fixer in relationships. Do you have any advice for helping a significant other through this grieving process and how I can go about this without being pushy or somehow making things worse? You sound like an incredible sweetheart. You really do sound sweet, letter writer. Um, 
you clearly you clearly care about this man. You clearly want to help him. You clearly have a lot of empathy for the grief he's going through. I just got to say, this guy, I hope he's grateful because you're really, you really seem like a lovely, lovely person. I think, I think it is good to start with the things that do seem like good and lovely here because I started with just, you know, all of my like red flag sensors raised. Yes. Um, not least because of the word empath, which I just do not care for. Um, <laughs> uh, so I want to start by kind of like addressing that part and getting it out of the way. Um, it's clear that this guy's pain is real. It's clear that your love for him is real. It's clear that you want to be of use to him. All of those are really good things. I also think that it is easy to stop at a moment of self-knowledge and say this will change that pattern. So you say, I have a tendency to be a fixer, and this one's really sad, and he's been really struggling for two years. And what looks like the solution right now is that when I'm around him, he feels better. And when he feels better, he can do a little bit more. And then I also really want to just volunteer to do the hard stuff for him because I care about him. And that, to me, I think there's a lot of potential pitfalls down that path. Um, You know, this guy is dealing with really complicated grief. It sounds like the beginnings of a hoarding problem. And again, I don't say that as like, you should diagnose him. He's got the following underlying conditions. He needs to go see a doctor and you should like, you know, write to A&E's hoarders, which I don't think is still on the air. Um, (laughs) But it it does seem pretty clear that the issue that is the most at the forefront of, of his life right now is his inability to address clutter because when he tries to address clutter, it activates his grief and he feels like getting rid of anything is like getting rid of my mother, which I think is, um, there's enough in line there with hoarding issues that it is worth speaking to or considering speaking to a mental health professional who treats those things. And, and, you know, ideally somebody who also does organizational work, but it, it, it will be difficult to address one without addressing the other. And if your solution is just he feels better when I'm around so I can just do it for him, I think you will run into a lot of problems up to and including, you know, if things don't go well in this relationship, you will feel like, well, I can't leave because if I leave, then I'm leaving him alone with his dead mother and his grief and he will be lost. And again, that's just a recipe for an unstable relationship dynamic, possible resentment, you not getting your own needs met in this relationship, feeling like things are really one-sided, um, So that's not to say never help him do the dishes. That's not to say never be sympathetic and available when he's struggling. But I I do think that rather than saying, I love organizing, let me do it, you know, talk to him about what does he want? You know, like what are his goals for the stuff in his house? What does he feel prepared to do? Does he think that hoarding names something accurate about the condition that he experiences? Does that upset him? Does he want to talk to a mental health professional? Does he want to talk to a doctor? Does the idea of getting rid of some of this stuff feel like a good idea to him that he just doesn't know how to make happen? Or does it feel like that would be like killing my mother all over again? And you'll need to know the answer to these questions before you can figure out where can I be useful and help set up an appointment and encourage him to do something versus, you know, where can I step in and lift some of the burden for him? Yeah. And I would um, second everything that you just said, Danny. And keep in mind, you know, this is his journey. This is his home. These are his possessions. That was his mother. And you are somebody who loves him, who cares for him, who has a lot of empathy for him and so on. And that's all great. But another thing that could cause resentment here on top of everything else is, let's say you did dive in and started taking care of stuff. 
let's say you did donate something that would cause him incredible agony or throw something out or place something somewhere that he couldn't find it later or whatnot. And I just feel like there are a lot of potential pitfalls of you becoming the bad guy in this somehow when, you know, you're just trying to be there for him. And, you know, you you have the self-knowledge to know that being a fixer in relationships is not necessarily the healthiest thing to be in a relationship. Uh, being in teams is great. You know, we all work great in teams, hopefully. But uh, for one person to be the fixer and then the other to be the patient, uh, you know, that that can be really tough. But yeah, I think if that worked out really well, you would have said, I'm the fixer in relationships and it goes great. <laughs> People love it. It makes me really happy and it just sets us up for long-term sustainability. Um and I, again, none of this is to say like, oh, this guy is like a, a bad candidate for a relationship. He has too many problems. You should only look for somebody who never suffers or never struggles. I don't mean that at all. Um, but, you know, the things that I just want to flag here are you started dating him a few months ago. Um, when we're together, he's happy. What's he like when you're not together? Is he always unhappy when you're not together? And if so... Do you feel happy about that? I mean, I'm sure there's ways in which it can make you feel really important and special. And I'm sure there are also ways in which it could feel terrifying. And so I think part of the goal here should be, what are the things that he can avail himself of that are not just me? You are not a treatment for grief. You are not a treatment for depression. You are not a treatment for hoarding. Um, You are a person who can love him and help him. But, you know, no doctor in the world is going to say, like, I prescribed Sandy. (laughs) You know, just get Sandy, get her in your life and you're going to be great. So you say most of our time together is at his house. I'm fine with that. I'm surprisingly comfortable at his house. And that just as someone with a a history of fixing myself, I get real nervous around that because I have also done a lot of like, and you know, I wouldn't have guessed it, but it turns out I'm fine with it. (laughs) And like part of the thing of being the fixer is like, you make sure you're fine with things until the day you're not. Like you, you are always trying to be adaptable. You are always trying to be cheerful. You are always trying to be helpful for a number of different reasons. And so I think more often than not, you will always be able to say, weirdly, I can make this work. And so the goal here should not be, what can I make work? But the goal here should be, you know, we're a few months into a relationship. I want my partner to feel like they can rely on me. The reverse is also important. It's important for us to sometimes spend time at my house, even if that's a little bit tricky or inconvenient. It's important for us to not always be just like managing his grief in his home. Like we're a few months into a relationship. What's in it for me? Yeah. And I am curious, has he been to your place? What happens when you're at your place? Does his mood shift entirely? Is his grief heavier when he's with you and not on his own turf? Um, We don't hear about that. And um, I would love to know more about what makes you happy when you're together. Um, you know, hopefully he gives you some sort of joy and you have certain things in common and you have similar outlooks on the world in certain ways. I hope so. And I, I hope that whatever that happiness is that you share together goes beyond I'm relieving his grief right now. Right. And and I think really the goal here in these conversations with him, and again, none of this is to say never wash a dish of his, never go over to his house again, tell him to just like, you know, deal with it, hit the showers, like walk it off, be great. None of that uh, is the solution. But I think to say, honestly, you know, so far when you try to tackle this project, 
you trigger a cascade of grief that overwhelms and derails you. I want to be there for you in that. And it's also really important to me if this relationship is going to continue that we both know what are your options besides just me when you're overwhelmed and derailed. And is that going to be a psychiatrist? Is that going to be talking more to your friends? Is that going to be a therapist? Is that going to be a doctor? Is that going to be a professional organizer? Is that going to be a combination of all the above? Is it going to be even just like journaling? Like what does he have available to him when he feels overwhelmed and derailed that is not just you? Because if it's just you, that will make things worse. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life, as they say. And good luck. You know, you both deserve help, love, and support, and I wish you both the best. That's hard stuff. That's our mini episode of Dear Prudence for this week. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. As always, if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. 